Jesus asks this explosive question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He hits the issue head on with a deeply divisive either or question. Christians, of course, love asking these either or questions, although we're not quite so keen on answering them. But we see in Jesus here this quiet strength and determination, a strength that overrules the duty of respect for his hosts and his surroundings. And the the problem for Jesus is the religious leaders have essentially sort of painted themselves into a corner so that they're now against the idea of someone being healed of a disease on the Sabbath. And that may be not what they intended, but that's where they've ended up. And it, it can't be, Jesus is saying, it can't be what God intended with his gift of Sabbath rest for people to be getting cross and grumpy that someone was being healed of a nasty disease. Now at this point, the dinner party goes very quiet. No one speaks. No one is going to say, uh, actually, it is against the law to heal on the Sabbath. No one's going to say that, and they probably have an inkling of what is coming next, that Jesus is going to heal this man. And Jesus does. He heals him tenderly and authoritatively, curiously sending him on his way, so sparing him the rest of this mortifying dinner party. And Jesus follows this up with a further skewering of the watching, doubting guests. Jesus confronts them with their hypocrisy by observing that if one of their children, or even, to be honest, one of their livestock fell into a well on the Sabbath, they wouldn't hesitate in pulling them out. They wouldn't debate it. They wouldn't pray about it. They would simply think, that's a well. That's my child. It's not a very child-friendly place to be. I'm going to haul them out. Jesus is saying, I see this man made in God's image, loved and valued. I see them. Why would I refrain from offering healing and compassion? And again, for a second time, there is absolute silence. It's not, if you're a fan of going out for meals, it's not the spontaneous silence that suddenly descends as hungry guests all tuck in to a delicious plate of food. Nor is it the grateful silence as guests push back their chairs and push back their plates at the end of the meal in contented, replete satisfaction. This is the deeply uncomfortable silence of embarrassment, of being made to feel petty and stupid. And this, friends, is a really good reminder of what it is like to be in Jesus' presence. There will be moments of wonder and of praise and thanksgiving. Think about the woman who we thought about a few weeks ago who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and with her perfume, this beautiful moment. But even then, she has had to face her own past and her own brokenness. There will be moments of beauty and clarity and wonder. Think of the Last Supper. But even then, we might be quick to squabble or we might be concealing the heart of a traitor. 
But there will also be moments of confrontation as there are here. When Jesus challenges head on cherished, oft worn ideas from our culture, ideas that aren't of his kingdom. And when we are first confronted by Jesus, we may well be cross or perplexed or uncomfortable. Well, that's okay. You know, if we're really honest, none of us here want a discipleship, a way of following Jesus that is 100% all happy feelings or 100% affirmation of our long-cherished prejudice. We want, we need Jesus to confront us. One of the important parts of our being church is that we do this together and we do it in community uh, through our small groups at Alpha, small groups in homes, uh, through prayer triplets and other uh, ways of church being small. This passage reminds us that it's highly unlikely that we will dine with Jesus throughout our lives and not find that there are questions that he asks us and presuppositions that he challenges that reduce us to silent, sometimes embarrassed, sometimes angry reflection. That is okay. That is part of what it means to be a friend of Jesus. Though there are two final parts to this passage that we will look at briefly now. At first sight, they might appear less substantial. The first is some advice about choosing a seat at important social occasions. The second concerning who makes it onto our invitation list. Luke calls Jesus' comments on places of honor, he calls them a parable. So this is not Jesus giving a handy piece of social advice to save us from embarrassment. As we have literally just seen, do not look to Jesus to be saved embarrassment. He is more than happy in love to, to cause embarrassment in spades. Never look to Jesus to be saved embarrassment. But Jesus does use our appreciation of the potential embarrassment of a high-end social occasion he uses that to teach us a deeper truth. And actually, it's not hard for us, is it, to picture the scene at the wedding feast that Jesus talks about. It's actually not so different to weddings nowadays or, or business dinners, maybe. Jesus' cunning parable, dressed up as uh, a social etiquette, translates actually very easily indeed. So it won't be hard for us to imagine. It's a wedding. It's a wedding. You arrive. You spot, unbelievably, two seats on the top table. You know that tradition says that those two seats are for people in the bridal party. But you are well-dressed, and you are well-known, and you are long-term family friends of the bride and the groom. So bypassing the seating plan, you march confidently past the other guests and you enjoy that momentary envy and admiration from them. How important you are to walk directly to top table. You sit down to survey the scene. Yes, this is where I belong. And then you notice that the father of the bride is coming towards you, maybe to welcome you, maybe not. 
But as he leans in to whisper, you sense that something is wrong. And he says, thank you so much for coming. I'm afraid these seats are for my parents. Mum's in the loo. Uh, We've put you on table 13, right at the back, just behind the pillar. Oh, here come Mum and Dad. Would you mind moving to your seats? And now you have to get up You have to retrieve your coats and, avoiding all eye contact, push past the very same people before taking your seats with some bored teenage cousins of the groom, knowing that every single person in the room, because this is England, is secretly delighted (laughs) at your comeuppance and your humiliation. This this is deliberate farce on Jesus' part. There aren't many people, maybe there aren't many people at all in the world who would confidently usurp a seat at top table at a wedding. That's the whole point of the story. Jesus uses the ridiculous presumption of the story to remind us of a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is we shouldn't big ourselves up. That is God's job. We choose the path of humility. We go to table 13 expecting and planning to have a great time. It fits with a lot of things Jesus says elsewhere. Uh, He warns us as disciples. uh, He says, don't take or don't seek positions of power and prestige. We have an innate need as human beings to feel superior to feel better than all the rest. And we can deploy many different ideas and theories and experiences to comfort ourselves with the thought that we are better than other people. Religious ideas, keeping to outward lifestyle rules or being strong on who's in and who's out, religious ideas are really powerful, successful ways to stand out in the crowd and to feel better than the rest. But for Jesus, those ideas are nonsense. They're just hot air that's going to deflate and that's going to leave us humiliated. Let's be clear, this is not Jesus saying, hate yourself. This isn't Jesus saying, put yourself down. This is Jesus saying, check your ego at the door. Or, another way, this is Jesus saying, Billy Big Head's don't get very far in the kingdom of God. Or again, this is Jesus saying, choose humility. Choose the way of unassuming smallness as much as you can. The last verses in this passage are outwardly straightforward, but still perplexing, and frankly, they're very easily and commonly ignored. I have no idea how your social diary works, whether it is painstakingly planned or whether it's largely spontaneous. But that's where these last verses fit. In those times when you're considering who to be generous to. Jesus' simple point is, if we only invite our existing friends, family, and well-to-do neighbors to share our lives and our good fortune, we have missed the point. Throwing lavish parties isn't actually generous if we see them simply as a down payment, as a guarantee of a future invite next year, next month, or if we see them as a way of cementing our place 
in society and in the world. Real generosity is giving lavishly to people who are overlooked by the majority. People who can't invite you back, pay you back, or make it worth your while. Now, of course, we're absolutely right to say this is not Jesus saying, don't invite your friends round to dinner. Because Jesus seemed to be doing that almost endlessly. But it does challenge us in a very Aramaic way, both individually and in our family groups and in our friendship groups and as a whole church. If everything that we do is for our tribe and for our people, keeping up and keeping in with the wonderful Joneses, we're not doing it for Jesus, we're doing it for ourselves. And we want to remain. And we want to become even more a church where the overlooked and the forgotten, whether they are near in Winchester or whether they are far in Uganda or in South Sudan or in Mongolia, we want to be a church where the overlooked and the forgotten have the best seats in the house. Amen.